We'll get into the show in a moment. But first, you've heard me talk about This Week in Raukbeer, the occasional show and thriving online community on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you haven't checked it out yet, please do. But also check out BeerEdge.com slash merch for our latest destination, Camp Raukbeer, the smokiest spot for beer vacations. Spend your summer in style with these great, high-quality, limited-edition items, including a lightweight t-shirt and ceramic campfire-style mug. Camp Raukbeer will create memories that last a lifetime. And there's also some Defend Pilsner glassware and t-shirts as well. So again, check out BeerEdge.com slash merch, and thanks for the support. This is Drink Beer, Think Beer, the podcast that gets to the bottom of every pint. I'm John Hall. This week, I'm glad to be talking with Charles Finkel. He's the longtime owner of Pike Brewing in Seattle, as well as a beer historian, writer, foodie, importer, and font of knowledge. But first, my thanks to this episode's sponsors, and I hope you'll give them a closer look. At Athletic Brewing Company, their innovative process allows them to brew great-tasting craft beer without the alcohol. From IPAs to stouts to gold nails and more, they offer a full selection of beers starting at only 50 calories. Now you can keep your head clear and enjoy the refreshing taste of beer anytime, anywhere. Place an order today at athleticbrewing.com and get free shipping on two six-packs or more. And NZ Hops is a proud sponsor of Drink Beer, Think Beer. Harvest has officially ended in New Zealand, and there are exciting hops to choose from, including Nelson Savin, Matuika, Ruwaka, and the newest hop in the lineup, Nectaron. The white wine, stone fruit, and tropical fruit notes, layered with pine, citrus, and herbal notes, offer a range of flavors unlike any other growing region in the world. Learn more about what they can do for your beers by visiting nzhops.co.nz or finding NZ Hops on social media. So any beer lover that's been to Seattle over the last three decades has likely stopped by Pike Brewing. Near the iconic market of the same name, the brewery was founded by Charles and Roseanne Finkel in 1989. Part brewery, part pub, part museum, this welcoming spot has worked tirelessly to deliver on quality and flavorful pints while pushing forward a local experience. Charles and Roseanne helped shape the way beer is perceived here in the United States, starting with their import company, Merchant of Inn, in the 1970s. Their company has been through a lot in its 30-plus years, and while looking forward, Charles is also using history as a guide. In this interview, recorded over Zoom, he talks about the evolution of the brewery, how he approaches beer and food pairings, the importance of local, and shares insight into being an owner and what the future holds for this iconic brand. COVID impacted the brewery, of course, and we start there. But this year is also his first without Roseanne, who died nearly a year ago. The two were inseparable, and a constant presence side by side at the brewery, at tastings, events, conferences, and more. Her presence is felt in his words during this conversation. I want to go back to 1989 when uh, you and Roseanne founded Pike because there's been so much that has happened since then, but it, it, with that perspective and with that date in mind, I, I'm, I'm curious as to what the, the last year plus has been for Pike, for the brewery in a brewery that has seen, you know, so much over three decades. Well, the last year, John has been uh, tumultuous to say the least for first and foremost, uh, I lost the, my, my, partner in life and my partner in the brewery. Uh, Roseanne died almost a year ago. Uh, it'll be the sixth uh, year on the 16th of June. And, uh, and prior to that time, she had been ill uh, for yeah. a couple of years. So I, I was devoting a lot of my energy to her welfare. And the idea of uh, sheltering in place and wearing a, a mask or not going out and exposing ourselves to uh, people was not new to us when COVID came up. And then when COVID did come up, uh, it was, uh, it was uh, really a, a, a horrible thing for Pike. Uh, we are in a downtown location. We're in sort of the ultimate downtown location in the style of many European breweries. And we have our, our uh, pub, Pike Pub. We have 
Tankard and Ton, which is a, an upscale oyster bar and seafood restaurant, which I don't think that you visited. Uh, wouldn't have been open four years ago when you were here. Am I right? Uh, you are. Uh, it was under construction and I got a peek through the uh, uh, construction plastic that was exactly. hanging from the walls. And yeah. So uh, going into COVID, uh, aside from uh, Roseanne's health, uh, Pike was very healthy and our sales were uh, on the increase, both at the pub at Tangard and Ton and, and at our brewery. So we operate three, although they're one and the same, three different uh, revenue sources. And, uh, and then all of a sudden, uh, all hell breaks loose and, and uh, we had to close two of them, the Pike Pub, which is the largest of the three, and then uh, the uh, Tangard and Ton, and uh, brewery sales decreased because 25% of our brewery sales are sold in the pub, or have been sold in the pub, and uh, pub and Tangard and Ton, and so uh, our sales were in in the doldrums. So we have concentrated our efforts on uh, uh, off-premise sales, mm -hmm. given, given the circumstance, and we've been pretty successful with that. Uh, you mentioned Costco selling one of your books. We were successful <laughs> in selling Costco, one of our beers, Cosmic Pulp IPA. That's been a big hit, and that's helped. And we've just concentrated on an area that, uh, that wasn't as big for us. Uh, we're in all the specialty supermarkets, the ones that are have the best selection and are the, the most knowledgeable about the products, but we, we have not uh, uh, traditionally been in the Kroger's and the Safeways, and the, we are a little bit, but uh, that hasn't been our focus, and uh, now the focus has changed, so it's been sink or swim, and uh, we're, we're swimming. So yeah, a year later, uh, maybe a little less than a year later, we were able to open the Pike Pub, and then we were forced to close it again by, by decree of the governor. Mm -hmm. Then we opened it, then we closed it, then we opened it, then we closed it. So we did that two or three times. That's not only disconcerting, but uh, financially not, <laughs> not the most practical uh, way to run a business. And Tangard and Ton has been closed the entire uh, pandemic, and uh, we're, we're we have plans now to open Tangard and Ton, which is directly, as you pointed out, upstairs from the pipe. Yeah. So I wouldn't say it was one of those years that uh, that I would ever want to repeat. No. When when you opened Pike, did. It's interesting to me to hear that that grocery stores weren't a focus um, because I, I think about the longevity of your brewery and, um, you know, I, I remember seeing the beer on shelves out here in New Jersey um, uh, for, for a time and um, because there weren't a lot of breweries in the country when, when you opened up, um, th there was an opportunity to get your beer into faraway states and to, to, to other locations. Um, was 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 there a focus of specialty shops only? Like like why not grocery early when on? I say, when I say specialty shops, I don't mean uh, necessarily just wine shops. I'm talking about grocers that that okay. have, uh, here in Washington. One is Metropolitan Market. It's actually quite a large company. It's owned by a Korean uh, uh, conglomerate, and it's a phenomenal store. Whole Foods, uh, uh, PCC, mm -hmm. independent supermarkets. That's where we concentrate our efforts because to, to sell Kroger, for example, which is one of the big players in our market, you have to go to Cincinnati. If you listen to the, if you listen to the advertisements for Kroger, which uh, in this market goes under the brand name of uh, Fred Meyer and, uh, and QFC, they, it's all about local. They're telling you about how local they are and how they buy their, they source their vegetables locally. But the reality is in order to sell them, you have to go to Cincinnati. 
well, uh, uh, where the where the Kroger headquarters are. So, or Walmart. I suppose you'd have to go to Bentonville, Arkansas, in order to, to really make a, a meaningful impact on on uh, uh, Walmart. So, yeah. uh, and we just never had enough beer. The reason there was some beer in New Jersey is originally when we started Pike in 1989, we had a relationship with a company called Merchant Van East. You remember that Pike was a part of Merchant Van Corporation, which is a company that Roseanne and I started in 1978. And mm -hmm. uh, so, they, we had an East Coast presence with, I uh, closed the door, so. That's Sky, uh, our Havanese puppy. Okay. <laughs> Who's very clearly excited about podcasting. Yeah, well, a, yeah. dog, a dog walked by. So, <laughs> so she gets very excited when, when that happens. A squirrel, a dog, a rabbit. Sure. They're all, they're all exciting to her. So it was part of Merchant of Ann, and we, for a time, uh, or they, Merchant of Ann East, uh, and they handled all of our imported products, Samuel Smith, Iger, Orval, Lindemans, and uh, they, we contracted with the Catamount Brewery. Oh, sure, in, in Vermont, yeah. In Vermont, and they produced Pike under license in Vermont. And actually, it was a good beer, and it uh, worked out well. But Catamount ultimately went out of business, and uh, and that was just about the time that we sold uh, Merchant of Van and along with it Pike. Okay. To, to uh, 1997. Mm -hmm. So uh, we we sold the company in '97, and then uh, in. 2006, uh, Roseanne and I bought back the Pike part only, not not the uh, not the uh, uh, van part. I, I, I've I've talked with you about this in the past, but I, I've always found that interesting of selling the company and then coming back to it years later. Um, what was the what was the original thought, and then what was why come back to it? Well, it wasn't that we wanted to sell Pike. We didn't want to sell Pike. Pike was our our baby, and it but it was part of Merchant of Van. With Merchant of Van, we were devoting our energies to selling brands of beer that belonged to other people, and in many cases, uh, other people that had in most cases that uh, had a family tradition of running the the businesses for multiple generations. And uh, so we were traveling a lot. I was traveling a lot. We had the East Coast presence with Merchant of Van East. They were traveling a lot. And, uh, and I was working really hard and so was Roseanne. And mm -hmm. uh, we started Pike and, and uh, we loved Pike and maybe we loved Pike maybe a little bit more than we loved uh, representing these family companies in, in Europe and significantly I wanted something that was one of the motivations for Pike, something that was local. And uh, at, at that time, the first craft brewery had started in Washington State in, I think, uh, 82. That was the Grants Yakima Brewing Company. Okay. And, uh, and then Red Hook followed not long after that. And uh, I, I observed that all the press went to these craft breweries and you talk about beers that were substandard uh <laughs> it, these these beers i don't know if you tasted an early red hook or grant's uh uh imperial stout or or uh scotch ale or uh ipa they were the first ipa i believe in the country and i think we are now the long the craft generation yeah Craft generation. I don't mean the Valentines. Yeah, I was gonna. Yeah, but the first modern uh, IPA, and uh, so anyway, while we had beers that were decidedly superior to those, the the media attention was was toward these locally produced craft beers, understandably so, 
And, uh, and, and I like the concept. I like the concept originally of having my own brewery. So we started Pike, but it was part of Merchant of Ann. So yeah. at, at a certain time when we felt that we were able to, to profit, I don't really mean financially, but profit by relaxing our lifestyle slightly and, uh, and financially as well, we sold the company and Pike went right along with it. So eight years later, uh, we uh, were offered Pike alone and it was like an answer to a dream, an answer to a prayer is exactly what we wanted to do is, is uh, be a local company. And uh, contrary, we didn't really want to sell in New Jersey. By that time, Merchant of Van had also sold, Merchant of Van East. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and when we came back into this, is pretty interesting. We came back into the brewery 2006. Sales were lackluster, and uh, we had a lot of interest from other states. One was Massachusetts, another was Connecticut, New Jersey. I don't, uh, was not one. Texas. Uh, we had already done, done business in Utah and in Alberta. And, uh, but as we came back into the brewery, we concentrated on sales, both on-premise, which was our focus because as a craft brewery on-premise is, you know, you don't have to have bottles and cans and you just sell kegs of beer and they're recyclable. That's the best, best way to sell beer. So that's what we continued to do over the, over a period of time. We had already, already created a market off-premise and happy about that, happy particularly with this COVID situation, but the volume of our beer was sold on on premise. So uh, we continued to expand the brewery and and grow both on and off premise. And we started selling in those markets. You know, when someone, when you have a brewery that's underperforming and someone from Massachusetts comes and says, hey, we want to sell your beer in Massachusetts, it's natural inclination to say, sure, that'd be great. But the problem with that, John, is that that's a lot. Massachusetts is a long way from Seattle, mm-hmm. and you can't uh, you you can't uh, monitor. We had the same thing with uh, Total One. They came to us and and uh, uh, wanted our beer nationally, and uh, we figured out a way to do it. But over a period of time, we had people complaining. Well, there was a beer in Florida and. It, you know, it looked like it, it, it was uh, way out of date. So in the local market, we control the quality. And, and all things considered, the reason we are around 32 years later, is because quality is really our, our middle name. We're all about uh, how good our beer tastes once it gets to the consumer. And uh, so we started withdrawing as our local market uh, increased we started decreasing our volume and uh, we stopped. We, I mean, we initiated ourselves. We stopped selling in Massachusetts and the New England states. We, uh, we stopped selling in Texas and Texas, for one thing, we had to pay some extraordinary fee to the state of Texas for the privilege of even selling there, not to consider the fact that it, it was a, a distant place from Seattle. So yeah. we were able to make up that volume locally. And I, we thought that was, and think that was a lot better than trying to be a national uh, brand. And in the meantime, uh, a lot of other breweries expanded nationally. And most of them, uh, uh, ultimately, many of them, I should say, regretted that move because they began to withdraw based on the same reasons. It's expensive to maintain a national presence, have salespeople traveling to New Jersey, for example, uh, when you're a small Seattle company and you potentially can sell all your beer here. So that's what, what it was. So anyway, we sold, when we sold the company, uh, Roseanne and I had both been working since we got married, 1968, and uh, we needed a little bit of a break. It was, uh, I mean, I'm a hard worker and she was a hard worker and uh, so, uh, we, that's why we sold it partially and we were able to relax a little bit. We 
became active in, in slow food. We went to Italy every year with slow food. Yeah. Uh, we uh, uh, traveled to Africa and to China and to places that, that we had no reason to go from a business perspective. Most of our traveling prior to that time had to do with <clears throat> relationships with breweries. <clears throat> Excuse me. Breweries in England and Belgium and France and Germany. And uh, I'm not complaining about that. That was a pleasure. But there's a big world out there, and uh, including Asia, which, uh, which is a new favorite. I haven't forsaken France, but <laughs> in, in any way, but I, I fell in love with Japan and China, and we ended up doing business in, in uh, uh, Japan. But in Japan, unlike what I described, uh, although I have been there on sales calls, most of the business is done through this company that represents us there and they do a really good job of they're our agent so they do a really good job of, of uh, selling our beer in that that market which has increased and also was a big help during COVID, even though perhaps they experienced it even even more dramatically than we did yeah i i i want to explore this this idea of local a little bit because it's something that craft has really sold itself on in you know over the last 30 years of you know drink local support local and in in some cases you can go to a brewery tap room um and you know, drink there and, and that's a great experience but then you can also get you know the beer across state lines so you can get you know the beer internationally and all of that and local sort of becomes uh not just a uh, it becomes sort of a buzzword, I think. Um, when, when you think about Pike's Place locally, especially with how much Washington State's beer industry, uh, small beer industry, has grown uh, since 1989, has the idea of local changed or has the concept of local gained more importance? Well, in some ways, John, it's, it's gained more importance. For example, uh, there, there are neighborhoods in Seattle that are, they concentrate on their own, their own breweries. So Ballard is an example of that. It's more challenging to get Pike, which is made in downtown Seattle in, a, uh, in Ballard, in a restaurant in Ballard, which has itself 20 breweries, I'm guessing 20 breweries. So they, people would, the restaurants like to say, oh, we're local. We only have Ballard beers. And I mean, Ballard is uh, five miles from downtown, downtown Seattle. It's not just Ballard, it's neighborhoods. And people tell me that same thing around the country. Is that the case in New Jersey? I, it's, 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 yes. Um, I'm, I'm really probably not the best expert on what's happening in my own state. Uh, these days, <laughs> prior to COVID, I was traveling so much that I was, uh, it was tough for me to actually enjoy what was happening here. And then the last year sort of kept me locked down. But I, uh, yeah, I, I, I think by and large, yes. It's just a natural thing. And there is something to be said for local. You can, as I said, you, we as the brewery can control the quality, the quality going out, whether we're shipping to New Jersey or even Seattle is the same and beer has a pretty good shelf life uh 90 day shelf life so presumably uh the beer will have sold within that without in that time frame if it's properly monitored but uh if you're not there and you have a wholesale distributor that handles a myriad of products other than yours uh sometimes you get lost in the in the shuffle and you have old beer in the market and that's not to anyone's advantage and it certainly not uh, does not uh, reflect well on on uh, the brewery that that's selling that beer no matter if it's their fault or or not so uh, i guess a better word than local would be monitored uh but uh that's not a very attractive word <laughs> <laughs> and uh so most of our business is done within our own state. 
and uh, we have pretty good distribution in the state. And uh, even in those big chains I'm talking about, they have certain of our brands. They just don't, they, they don't have what, what the specialty chains have. And that's a full complement of our beer. I mean, maybe they have one or two beers, one or yeah. two brands. When you think about recipes and beer styles that have worked for Pike, over the years, especially when, when you first started, I mean, you were talking about Imperial stouts and Scotch ales made by some of the other brewers that were uh, around a little bit before you, but th those are styles that I think of when I think of Pike. Um, and I've had some of the, the modern, uh, you know, hazy IPAs and, and, and some of the more, I guess, newer, uh, hipper flavors, uh, which makes me sound neither new nor hip when I say it. Um, when you think about sort of the evolution of, of Pike and the beers that you've been producing over the years, is there a line that you see? Is there a, a natural trajectory uh, that, that you can sort of trace with your finger as you, as you look at the beers over the years? Well, the reason that we produced the beers that, that we uh, started with, which was uh, Pike Pale Ale, Pike Place Ale, Mm -hmm. and uh, Pike 5X Extra Stout in 1989. <clears throat> and then the following year, Pike IPA and Kilt Lifter Scotch Ale. Uh, and those are all beers that we continue to make. And they, they have a niche. They have followers within the, within the market. And hopefully and seemingly those followers have become younger over a period of time. I mean, it's not just the original people. That's what I was going to ask. Yeah. We're not dependent upon just the original people that bought Pike Place Sale in 1989. So uh, what you have in the market are a lot of people that are experimenting all the time. And because there are so many beers, uh, they, they uh, uh, try a myriad of different ones. And uh, so the original people may not be there anymore. And the people that came a little bit later tried it. They, like you said, what's old is new. Mm -hmm. uh, the next generation that comes along may not have tasted Pike Place Ale. And now they experience that and they like the taste. I mean, our, our motivation really was beers that we, I personally thought tasted really great. Yeah. Pike Place Ale is a delicious beer. It, it has, it's properly balanced. It has a nice malty character. It has a good, good balance of hops, but not overwhelming like some IPAs are. And uh, it goes with a lot of foods, which speaks to what you mentioned earlier. Yeah. Food pairing. And it's a really good beer. It's sometimes overlooked because everyone thinks they're supposed to drink IPA. So our Pike IPA was introduced in 1990. We still make the same beer, except that in, 1980, uh, uh, in 1990, uh, we were forced to use, also for the Pike Place Ale, forced to use uh, the best quality malt we could get our hands on. And that time it was crisp malt from England. Okay. In retrospect, it's not too local if the main ingredient in the product is from England. Yeah. No matter where the brewery is located or, or uh, uh, the fact that we use local hops, even Rainier Brewery advertises they use lo local Yakima hops, even though they're even though they don't use much of them. And, right. And they're they, they manufacture it in Los Angeles, no, no longer in Washington State. So, uh, but, but uh, beers that we, the stout, I love the stout. Pike 5X Extra Stout, that is one of the very best beers produced. One of the best stout, a lot of people really screw up stout. By the way, we never made an Imperial Stout. Okay. I introduced Imperial Stout with Samuel Smith. I convinced Samuel Smith that uh, there was a market for Imperial Stout. 
and that was based in part on the fact that the previous uh, company, I think it was Courage, that made Russian Imperial Stout, sold that company sold to, I think, uh, British American Tobacco Company. They in turn sold to Scottish and Newcastle. They in turn sold to, I think, Carlsberg Heineken. And, and in somewhere during that process, they stopped making Russian Imperial Stout. So I lamented that and expressed that to Samuel Smith. So I designed the label and came up with the idea of introducing Samuel Smith Imperial Stout. But Pike never made an Imperial Stout. We, we, made, we, we have made a beer, I suppose we could have called, and, or I shouldn't say have, we do make a beer which uh, we might call Imperial Stout, which is a, uh, a stronger wood age stout. Mm -hmm. We call that Entire. Okay. Which is a, a traditional name for, for a strong porter. More with Charles in just a moment, but first, a quick word from this episode's sponsors, and I hope you'll give them a closer look. At Athletic Brewing Company, their innovative process allows them to brew great-tasting craft beer without the alcohol. Place an order today at athleticbrewing.com and get free shipping on two six-packs or more. And if you're thinking about beer competitions and the newly announced New Zealand Pale Ale and New Zealand IPA categories, visit NZ Hops online at nzhops.co.nz or find them on social media. There, you'll learn about varieties bursting with white wine, stone fruit, tropical fruit aromas, and more. Hops from New Zealand are unlike any others found on the globe. Discover them today. And now, back to my conversation with Charles Finkel of Pike Brewing in Seattle. I want to back up just a little bit where you say that uh, uh, people uh, can screw up stouts. Um, how in your mind um, can a stout not be a stout uh, is, is not living up to its full potential? What, what, what are the attributes for you? Well, the, the first consider the, the one that most people think of and the one that's case act and all the, grocery stores at St. Patrick's Day. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I've heard of it. Yeah. And uh, taste that. And, I, and that's a good example of how you can screw up a stout. <laughs> to me, that's about as ordinary a beer as you can, as you can possibly get your hands on. I once had an interview with the, uh, with the uh, head brewer at uh, Guinness. And he came to Seattle on a promotional tour around St. Patrick's Day. And uh, a local magazine, Seattle Magazine, invited me and two other brewers that were, uh, that, that had worked at Pike, that then made Stout, uh, and to meet with him and to taste all our beers. And, uh, we asked the question about well, what hops do you use? And the answer was, uh, they don't really care about the variety of the hops. All they care about is the alpha acid. Now that's the, this is this one brewer, this is 20 years ago. Okay. And, uh, and his- I imagine there's a, a, a more finessed answer uh, by somebody in that job these days, but yeah. I would, well, he was the head brewer. So I guess the PR people would answer it differently. Yeah. but. Thin, lackluster, without a really uh, roasted malt flavor. Uh, that that's how you can screw up a stout, uh, or or make it so strong that it's hardly drinkable, or so so sweet that it's hardly drinkable. Those are the things that I, I would I would criticize uh, stout. Stout is supposed to be well balanced, dark beer that has uh, plenty of. Uh, of uh, malt character, roasted malt character, chocolate and coffee and nuances of, of these beautiful flavors that pretty much everyone likes. I certainly do. I love coffee. I love chocolate. I love ro roasts, uh, dark bread, pumpernickel. I like, I like uh, uh, malt. Yeah. For me, the malt flavor, that is a, that's a delicious flavor. That's what it, made made beer so appealing to me in the first place liquid bread if you will yeah all right you're talking about flavors so i i want to 
sort of train change uh, tracks for for just a second here because. Uh, once upon a time, there was a, a magazine called All About Beer, and it had been around for 40 or so years, and then it wasn't around anymore, and it was a, a, a terrible loss, I think, for, for journalism, and I say that as the former editor. But uh, there I, is a- I agree with you, because as a former editor, you know that I wrote for that publication for most of its existence. It, yes, and there is a column in there called Beer Talk, which uh, would have two- uh, experts uh, in the field of beer side by side, and they would taste beers. Uh, they would taste the same beers and offer up their tasting notes and their and their thoughts on it. And during my tenure at the magazine, you were chair, uh, paired with Charlie Papazian, I believe. Uh-huh. And uh, Charlie would he he would find the the very best uh, things to say about a, a particular beer and uh, say some nice things about it and offer up a a little bit of tasting notes. But in-house and and one you were notorious for filing, I think, as we were getting ready to go to the printer. Um, but we always knew that the copy was going to come in clean and that it was always going to be a riveting read because uh, John Page and I, John was the ma- managing editor, uh, were convinced that you had a magic refrigerator because right. no matter what you were tasting, uh, you would say, well, you know, we opened up this uh, in the refrigerator, some, some delicious pate or a cheese or something that I actually had to look up and see uh, uh, what it was. And when I was able to actually find the pairings, uh, they, they, they just worked. But uh, your pairings in all about beer magazine were among my favorite to to read with every uh, every every issue, and you have really gone deep into beer and food pairings and the exploration of what can be teased out of what's in the glass versus what's on the plate. When you were doing those, and and even when you're tasting beers today, what does your mind do as you start to think about what you want to pair something with? I, I imagine it's sort of like the, the you know the movie A Beautiful Mind where the numbers just start swirling around your head um, uh, because they are so intricate. And maybe I'm romanticizing this too much, but well, uh, th- thanks for saying that. <laughs> uh, first, I have to say that I had a a partner in crime, and uh, Roseanne had an exceptional palate, and she and I both are what you would describe easily as foodies. Mm-hmm. So food consumed no pun intended, uh, an important part of our life. And for me, it still does. Uh, I love food and I'm constantly experimenting with with, uh, food. It tends now to be uh, more uh, vegetable based than than maybe, even even at that time, it was more uh, vegetable based than meat based. But uh, having said that, I'm not religious about it. I do eat everything and uh most everything and uh so we seldom had the same thing twice we were always trying different things and the pleasure of trying all those different beers for all about beer magazine was how how many different ones there were and uh and it was exciting when we got a new beer and uh, and and a new uh new taste and we were I mean, most of those things I, that I described, that's what we're having for dinner. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, so it was just a natural to say it either does or it doesn't go well with uh, Pont Levesque or uh, with, uh, with uh, gazpacho or whatever the, the food that we happen to have. It's not as if we tasted the beer and then say, okay, we're going to make gazpacho tonight. Uh, mm-hmm. We made gazpacho or or had Polovac, and then we tasted the beer, and oh, that's you know that's really delicious with it. And the reality is that beer is a good drink. <laughs> I mean, I'll use that as a general term. We've talked about the fact that not all beers are that great, and some breweries, you know, hang out their shingle and say, "I'm a craft brewery," and they expect everyone to love their beer. But in general, beer is a good drink, and beer is a drink that goes with food, mm-hmm. I, think, I think better than wine. And wine, you have this vinous uh, kind of uh, f- fruity, acidic flavor. And it, I like wine, I love wine, but uh, I, I think there are a lot of foods that wine is not as complimentary to as, as beer. Michael Jackson said that, that anything that goes with 
uh, bread will go with wine. And in my view, everything goes with bread. Yeah. A meal without bread is, you know, not really a meal. So answer yeah, I, I, I think so. I, I is there. I, I've always agreed with you that that uh, beer pairs better uh, with food than wine. And but there have been these these falsehoods that have been put out by the wine world over the years, uh, I think, just in an effort to sell expensive bottles of wine and, and and nice cuts of beef where you hear red meat pairs with red wine and white wine pairs with chicken and fish, which is really, it tells you nothing about what you're eating or drinking, um, how it's prepared, what it's going with, a, anything along those lines. Ha, have you found something in the beer pairing world um, that consistently delivers that if somebody is thinking about, you know, for example, yeah, the, the wine industry has, has uh, popularized the concept that wine, red wine and chocolate are, are delicious pairing. And though I've tried red wine with chocolate and over a period of time, for me, the acidity of the wine fights with the, with the chocolate. Mm-hmm. And by contrast, our Pike 5X extra stout with, with chocolate dessert, particularly with ice cream, for example, chocolate ice cream, that's a, that's a match made in heaven. That is really delicious. And not only my stout, but any, any good stout uh, are really delicious. But conversely, that stout is a delicious uh, drink to go with red meat. Mm-hmm. And uh, whether it's better than a claret, I, I wouldn't necessarily say. I, I love uh, a, a tenderloin steak with uh, with a bottle of uh, of uh, uh, Santabillion or of, of uh, Cabernet Sauvignon. Uh, it's, it's just delicious. But also, I, I like it with uh, with stout or with pale ale. Yeah. And, the advantage of, of be, one advantage of beer for me, especially, is that it's lowering alcohol. Mm-hmm. I don't really, I don't really want a highly alcoholic. And you ask about stout, what my criticism of, of the stouts, like some of these imperial <laughs> stouts, they're 10% alcohol, 12% alcohol. And, and I, that's also a criticism I have of some of the Belgian beers, although I introduced Belgian beers to America, I was the first to introduce Belgian beers to America. A lot of them are too sweet and too strong. Yeah, I prefer beers like Pike Place Ale or uh, or or IPA that are lower in alcohol, five six percent alcohol. When it starts getting to the eight, 12 percent alcohol, for me, they, they're they're not as as tasty with foods, and that's the way that I drink beer is with food, not not just as a, a just a drink. As you th- in Belgium, by the way, yeah, they drink red. They drink French wine with food. Mm-hmm. They drink beer with uh, with the snacks. Yeah, or just by itself. As you think back over the thirty-two years of Pike, uh, you mentioned some of the beers that are, are were there in the early days and, and and are still there today. And there's certainly some new beers that are that that have come out. Is, is there a beer that you put out at some point during its, uh, the brewery's history uh, that you had high hopes for that just didn't resonate and eventually faded away? Uh, there are, unfortunately, a few of those. <laughs> <laughs> One was dry wet. Okay. And uh, dry wet is a, a... I mean, it's a great beer name, but yeah. It's a great beer name. It was a great beer, but... For some reason, it just didn't resonate with the with the consumer here. Another was Hive High Five. Oh, that was your honey beer. Yeah, that was a honey beer. I remember that beer. Yeah, that was, that was a good beer. You remember that it was delicious beer, but uh, it sold pretty well in the summer. But when you went into the winter months, that was true of the dry whip too. When you went into the winter months, people were less committed to it. Okay. Those are, those are two that come to mind. Another is 
Pike Porter, uh, which was just a little bit lighter version of our stout. We've done that a few times. Uh, and it wasn't that people didn't like it. It's just that as a small brewery, you have to restrict yourself to so many brands and, uh, or you're, or you're, you know, falling over yourself trying to figure out, I just read an article in the New York times this morning about economics, about, uh, uh ready to go economics, which is what Toyota did with car parts. They sourced their their car parts locally <clears throat> so that they didn't have to inventory uh, large quantities of parts and they could make more money. Well, that's come back to, to haunt them now during COVID because they car manufacturers in general, uh, and they said Toyota was one of them, uh, don't have enough uh, microchips to be mm -hmm. able to manufacture their cars. And various industries that have relied on their suppliers to immediately supply them their, their whatever they need to make their product, even if it's a relatively small part of the overall mix, are hard pressed to deliver anything. They cited one chemical company that uh, sells uh, to the paint and ink industry, and now they can't get one resin of some kind and they're out of business because they can't, you know, you can't make whatever their their supplier, the, the people to whom they supply this this uh, resin can't make their paint, can't make their inks unless they have that. So in our case, we we if we are to be on the supermarket shelf, we have to consistently supply something. Mm -hmm. If we're out of a product, then there's always someone that's ready to put another product right in that slot. So what we have traditionally done is we have our standard beers and then we have beers that are, uh, that are seasonal beers. Yeah. And uh, we have a spot in many supermarkets for that rotating uh, beer. And we do three or four rotating beer, what we have done, three or four rotating beers a, a year. Alas, many of those in recent times have been have been uh, uh, IPAs. Yeah, there's such an over, seemingly such an uh, ex, inexhaustible demand for IPAs, and uh, and fortunately there are, as you point out, se several different uh, styles of IPA, and uh, people people like to like those and they like to regard themselves as IPA experts. So uh, uh, we've, we've done that and that's that's been successful. But you know the nature of a small brewery is you don't want to just make the same beers only. We do make some beers that consistently uh, we've made since 1989 but or 1990 mm -hmm. <laughs> and those are Pike Place Ale, Pike 5X Extra Stout, Pike IPA, uh, uh, Lifter Scotch Ale, but, and other ones that we've added over a period of time that have become part of our, our uh, regular uh, uh, all year round beers. One is Space Needle IPA. We won, oh, sure. we won the contest among brewers locally to brew the beer for the 50th anniversary of the Space Needle. And, uh, and uh, so that was added to the mix. And most recently, a uh, juicy IPA that we call Cosmic Pulp, uh, the one that I mentioned that Costco is selling. Okay. That's become part of our regular, regular thing. And then we also added a Pilsner. Okay. First, first time we added a, a Pilsner and that, that seems to have root, have, uh, residents and uh, uh, we continue to do it but and, and getting back to ones that I lament not having anymore <laughs> one is our, our tandem tandem was a double ale and Roseanne and I maybe it was it's more sentiment than than it is uh, a taste because tandem was our Belgian style uh, double and I didn't mention in that regular uh, lineup 
one that's really important to us is Monk's Uncle. Monk's okay. Uncle is a triple. And uh, that that really is a good brand for us. People love the taste of that. And, and uh, it's, it's a good name and it's been part of our, well, we introduced that in 2006. So it's been part of our lineup through since 2006. But Tandem would have been the double that it, in relationship to the triple of Monk's Uncle. And it was a really cute label with uh, Rosanna me on the, on the, the, on our tandem bicycle and orange like our tandem bicycle. And it was well received. And we still have a few pubs that are upset with us because we, we don't make it anymore. As you think about, I, I, I've been thinking about the pub quite a bit um, and, and I'm eager to get back into, to uh, really just spend time walking uh, around your place because it is a beer museum and there is so much history and you've spent so much time curating uh, a, a really wonderful collection of beer memorabilia and beer history uh, that, that people can get lost for days just just looking at the at, at the walls and pretty much every surface in there um, it, Thank as, you. as a student of beer history uh, and I know history in general but but of beer history, is there anything, as people say, you know, we're, we're, history is repeating itself. Um, is there anything that you're seeing today um, that, that history sort of points to, like, oh, this was going to happen, um, or this is a cyclical thing that's happening in beer right now? Um, well, I, I, yeah. Certainly the number of breweries that, that are extant to this day are reflective of pre-prohibition levels. We've even exceeded, maybe doubled the number of breweries that existed in America before prohibition. And uh, there was a real cause, a reason that they declined, went from about 4,000 before prohibition to uh, four or 500 after prohibition, immediately after repeal of prohibition. And now it's back up to what is it, seven thousand, eight thousand? Yeah, it's uh, it's. I haven't seen the updated numbers, but eight, somewhere in the eight thousand range. Right. So that that in itself is a reflection, and then right along with that, prior to prohibition, there were a lot of stouts and porters and bocks and IPAs and and uh, different styles of beer, even even monastic beers uh, in America. And then prohibition came along and put them all out of business. And then when, when, the, the, uh, uh, when the law was signed to allow legalized home brewing, that was 78, that, that changed the equation a little bit and a lot of people have been begin to experiment with, uh, to buy beer, to, to produce beers, I should say, that were not commercially available. And then many of those people turn their hobby into a, to a, uh, a business and, uh, and continue to do that. So, uh, yeah, I mean, stylistically and, uh, and, uh, I think also getting back to what we were talking about local. Yeah. There was a time when, uh, when people were so proud, this is from Milwaukee, this is from Hoboken, this is from uh, from here, there, or the other place, and then it became the practice in the food industry to, and that was true not only in beer; it was true of of uh, almost every food product you, that you can imagine. I mean, yeah. Hershey's Hershey's is an example, uh, but is, is Hershey's all produced in Pennsylvania? I don't know the answer to that. I don't either. Yeah, I, I doubt it. And uh, certainly most of the food products that, and beer especially, they, they abandoned the idea that uh, a particular brand was from Milwaukee or St. Louis. And they, they used the craft, craftily, they used the idea that <clears throat> uh, beer that was from Milwaukee was a premium beer, whereas the local product was a lower priced beer. And then uh, they saved the money on, the, they started brewing the beers in factories all over the country and saved the money, uh, the difference between the 
local price and the premium price and use that money on TV advertising at the time that TV emerged and built national brands. And uh, that's chronicled pretty well in that uh, Marine Ogle book. Yeah. About the history of Ambitious Brew. Yeah. Ambitious Brew. So uh, now you see reverse on that. And even, even with the Brewers Association coming up with a symbol that suggests to people that the beer that they're buying is an independent uh, <clears throat> brewery uh, because the big brewers don't happen to put on their labels. Uh, this is a, this is made by Coors or this, this is made by AB. Yeah. It's subterfuge. They're trying to get you to think it's a local brewery, but in reality, it's owned by the, one of the biggest companies in the world. And I think that the consumer, if they knew that, probably wouldn't be drinking it. Mm -hmm. Not every consumer, some people don't care, but a, I think a number of people buy craft beer because they presume that's made by some independent family company. As you think about ownership, um, there was an announcement, uh, I guess, two weeks or so ago now that uh, uh, part of the brewery is going to be uh, you, you just took an investment in a um, uh, Pacific Northwest company that specializes in uh, local restaurants and uh, they're, they're going to be responsible for leading the, the brewery into uh what you, what you said in the press release, a hundred year old goal, uh, a brewery of a hundred years, um, leading it into the next 60 or so years. Um, well, hopefully longer than that. <laughs> when, when you, and, and I imagine that this is a conversation that you and Roseanne had had, um, uh, previously, um, when, when you thought about what happens to the brewery, um, you know, after you, where did you start to think? What was the, what was the hope? What was the? Well, naturally, when we started it, our kids were young, <clears throat> and uh, they, uh, we were hoping they might come into the business in the same way that our our uh, peers in Europe kids had come into their business, but uh, they seemed not to have an interest in that, or seem as an un understatement. They didn't have an interest in that. <laughs> and so <clears throat> had I had that opportunity, I would have killed for it, but certainly jumped at that opportunity to, to go into a family business. But, you know, life is different now than it was when I was growing up. So Roseanne and I wanted some kind of an exit strategy, given the fact that uh, prophetically so that we weren't going to live forever. And uh, we fortunately uh, made contact with this gentleman whose name is Howard Wright. And he is uh, the owner, he and his family own the Space Needle, which is one of the most iconic uh, uh, symbols of Seattle, probably yeah. the most iconic symbol of Seattle, maybe, maybe along with the Pike Place Market, which is publicly owned. And uh, many people think the Space Needle is publicly owned because it, it is so uh, uh, ubiquitous in, in its r relationship with Seattle, if that's a good word. So Yeah, uh, I had no idea that it was privately owned. That's yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah, so it is. And it was actually Howard Wright's father, who also Howard Wright, is the person that, that uh, built it for the 1962 World's Fair. And it, it is the place that when we meet people at the pub, which we do every day and say, well, uh, where, where have you been or where are you going? Could we help you uh, uh, maximize the, the pleasure of your trip to Seattle? Uh, as often as not, they say, well, they've been to the Space Needle or they're, go or they're going to the Space Needle. And uh, which is wonderful. So <clears throat> Howard Wright uh, used the, the Space Needle as his entry into the hospitality industry. And uh, over, the, over the years, 
uh, he has expanded that to include uh, uh, Kenmore Air, which is a local air, air uh, aircraft company. Okay. Air, airline, I guess you'd call it, though not in the same way that United or Alaska is. Mm-hmm. But, uh, they fly a, f- a fleet of uh, small planes uh, from here up through the San Juan Islands, the Gulf Islands, all around uh, Puget Sound. Okay. And, uh, and it's quite a successful company. He owns the uh, one of the, what was the largest hotel in Seattle before a new Hyatt was recently built, and that's the Seattle Sheridan. And he bought a couple of years ago a local restaurant chain called Ethan Stoll Restaurants. Or when I say bought, he invested in. And uh, so the same with Pike. Uh, we before Roseanne died, we were considering exit strategy and. So we started the conversation with Howard and uh, it a uh, year and a half later, uh, it didn't exactly happen overnight, but year and a half later, we put the deal together and that was a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. So the idea is that, that they have invested in, in Pike. Uh, I continue to be the chair of the board of the company, uh, Drew Gillespie, who is the, do you know Drew? I do. Yeah. Drew, Drew has been with the company 23, 24 years. And uh, Roseanne and I made him president of the company about four years ago. I guess. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. And, uh, and he's done a magnificent job. He's a really talented, hardworking person. And uh, he's uh, uh, <laughs> half my age, and, uh, <laughs> which is nice. And uh, that's another thing about the, the good news about COVID, if you will, is we have such a loyal group of employees that the good news is that they continue to be a loyal group of employees. The bad news is we had no choice but to lay off a certain number of them. Yeah. So we had 100 people approximately going into the, uh, to the COVID uh, pandemic and now we're down to about 35 and but we're on our way back up because we're we were only open uh limited hours we have tankard had been closed we're going to open that so uh, uh we uh but every a lot of people are complaining they can't get people to come work for them so far that has not been a problem with us the employees that we have seem to want to come work for us. So our association with Seattle Hospitality Group, which is Howard Wright's company, mm-hmm. I, I think is nothing but positive. They think very much the way we think. They're beer lovers. Uh, they are, uh, they uh, have a uh, diversity attitude, trying to hire uh, people of uh, diverse uh, uh, everything. Uh, and uh, they're nice people. So, uh, and, and they're going to be around 100 years from now. That's the most important thing. Yeah. Well, much, much like in thinking about Seattle, uh, it, it's hard not to think about the Space Needle. It's, it's certainly the same with Pike. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad that there is a plan for the brewery to be around for quite some time to come. So that's... Yeah, uh, I'm very excited about it. And... I'm 77 years old, so I'll be 78 in September. So, uh, you know, although I have no plans to to leave anytime soon, you know, most people don't don't uh, work past 85. <laughs> <laughs> well, we still have uh, some some time to get together then in the uh, in the future at the pub. So I'll I'll look Definitely. forward to that. I look forward to it as well. As you think about beer travel again, I hope Pike is on your list, not only for the beers Charles mentioned, but to spend time at the pub, looking at the artifacts, the beer history, and the would-be otherwise forgotten items. There's a lot to learn about beer from beyond what is currently in our glasses at the time, and Pike's collection is among the finest in the world. My thanks again to him for taking the time. And my thanks to you for listening. 
we're headed into summer, which means road trips. So never miss an episode of this show by subscribing now. And if you like what you hear, consider leaving us a review. Questions, comments, concerns, you can reach me at John Hall, it's J-O-H-N-H-O-L-L, at BeerEdge.com, or you can join the conversation on Twitter at John underscore Hall. Beer Edge is on social media as well, at The Beer Edge. And check out BeerEdge.com for our merch page, where you can get the This Week in Rauk Beer Glassware, limited edition Camp Rauk Beer mugs and shirts, and a full line of Defend Pilsner gear. And if you're a brewery or a beer-adjacent company looking to help support independent journalism, please consider reaching out to Liz Melby on email. She's at liz at beeredge.com to learn about our surprisingly affordable advertising rates. And speaking of that, NZ Hops is a proud sponsor of Drink Beer, Think Beer. Harvest has officially ended in New Zealand, and there are exciting hops to choose from, including Nelson Savin, Matuika, Ruwaka, and the newest hop in the lineup, Nectaron. The white wine, stone fruit, and tropical fruit notes layered with pine, citrus, and herbal notes offer a range of flavors unlike any other growing region in the world. Learn more about what they can do for your beers by visiting nzhops.co.nz or finding NZ Hops on social media. And at Athletic Brewing Company, their innovative process allows them to brew great-tasting craft beer without the alcohol. From IPAs to stouts to gold nails and more, they offer a full selection of beers starting at only 50 calories. Now you can keep your head clear and enjoy the refreshing taste of beer anytime, anywhere. Place an order today at athleticbrewing.com and get free shipping on two six-packs or more. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to steal this beer every Monday and the BYO Nano podcast on the 15th of every month. And we'll see you at the This Week in Rauk Beer pages on social media. Nate Schweber does the music. Jeff Quinn designed our logo. Remember to defend Pilsner. I'm John Hall. New episodes release every Wednesday. And that's when I'll be back again to drink beer and to think beer. <laughs>